Yeah, the psalmist said, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know, whatever circumstances we happen to be walking in, whatever the difficulties of our lives, whatever the trials might be, we can still make a choice to bless the Lord. And Father, would you give us that capacity even today to bless you in all of the circumstances of our life. And we will be faithful, God, to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning to you. If you're visiting here for the first time, my name is Pastor Steve, and I want to welcome you here. Uh, glad that you've joined us. And uh, we've been doing a, well, it's sort of a series on uh, God's mission to bless the generations. Uh, and it's no surprise that God is on a mission, and Jesus, in fact, sent his only begotten son to be part of that mission to rescue us uh, from all of that which we needed rescuing from, chiefly our sin and brokenness and shame and all the rest. And uh, God's heart then is to bless the generations. And that's really what he's about. And as we've been, well, sort of walking through this concept of God desiring to bless uh, the generations, um, we have an opportunity to sort of reset, or to use another word, to recalibrate our strategic initiative. In other words, what are we about? What are you about? What is most important to us as we, as individuals, maybe as families, uh, or even as a church, uh, what's most important to us? And so as we sort of are going along uh, this concept, um, just a short recap, uh, it last a couple of weeks, we looked at, well, disciples pray. God is about building disciples, calling disciples. Jesus called 12, and through those 12, then ultimately 70, and through them, here we are, generations later. Now, so God is actually about building disciples, and through those disciples, that's us, rescuing a generation, which is to say you, believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, have a strategic importance in the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? That the God who created everything we see around us has chosen us and engaged us in His mission to bless other people. Well, we do that through prayer. A couple of weeks ago we looked at that. And uh, this past week we looked at, well, He calls us to obey Him. And in obeying Him, we looked a little bit at giving. And I want to just take a second, if I may, and uh, re refresh your memory what we looked at last week as it related to stewardship or um, God blesses us in order to use us to bless the people around us. And what I said was this real quickly. Uh, that God actually uh, calls us as his people to, at some point in time, uh, because we have received to learn the biblical principle of giving. And therefore, each one of us have begun. And we took a first step in beginning. We became a first-time giver. Uh, and then if you've ever given, and I, of course, know many of you have, there's another step God calls us to become uh, regular Givers, Not just to give once, but to learn the heart attitude of continually giving. And we become then, as we grow and mature, uh, regular givers. And if you're a regular giver, 
lo and behold, there's another step. And that next step is to become uh, a tither where you actually aren't just giving once or giving regularly something, but you're giving, well, proportional to how God has given to you. Could we ever give as God has given to us? I don't, I don't think so. But tithing represents that. We become tithers. And then if you're a tither, guess what? There's always another step and we become extravagant uh, givers. And uh, those extravagant givers all the way down to first time givers are how we actually that little circle uh, is the kingdom of God. God, what I said last week is that God ultimately resources his kingdom through people who have chosen to take a step to give. To, to give what? To give of your time, to give of your talents, to give of your treasures. And we looked at that last week. But not just to give once, to give regularly, not just to give regularly, but to give proportionally, not just to give proportionally, but to learn at some point as you're able to give joyfully and extravagantly. That's what I said last week. And, and actually, uh, I mentioned it. In fact, some may still be at this point, And that point is you're a non-giver. And therefore, God never comes with guilt and condemnation to us. Aren't you glad? Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And as we respond to his call to be uh, his disciples, we move from non-givers to taking the first step. And then the second, and then the third, and then the fourth. And that's sort of how we, we grow, giving cash, and then giving uh, systematically, and then giving proportionally, and then giving sacrificially. Uh, and as we give then that way, we find, lo and behold, as you look back over your shoulder or consider your life, you realize you've been taking these steps of following the Master, following Jesus. And one of these days we'll enter into a realm where we will hear him say, well done, way to go. You have been faithful. And God is looking for men and women who would then simply take whatever is the next step for your life. Whether you're an extravagant giver, continue to, to give, uh, maybe of, of talent. Uh, so today, I want to take just a few minutes and have you turn with me, if you would, uh, in your Bible or Maybe the one found in front of you. And I want to look at a, a text in Matthew chapter um, 18. And specifically, uh, it relates to um, this notion of why is God wanting to resource the kingdom? Why did I take time to, to go back and summarize? Why does God want to resource something? It's because he's building something. He's doing something on the earth right now. And you and I have been enlisted into what he's doing. And in order for God to do, to accomplish what he's doing, he takes people, the least of these. And he engages us in that kingdom. So uh, here are some of those people whom Jesus uh, had called, like us, and uh, I'll begin reading at this uh, first verse. It says, um, let me just read the first four or five verses here of Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they uh, said to him or were saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child and, to him and 
set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will uh, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child uh, like this in my name receives me. And as I was thinking some about that, it occurred to me, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Now, you might think how arrogant of them, how foolish of them. But I would suggest to you that we ask very similar questions. You know, we don't. Who's the greatest? And and yet we, we actually do. You said, let me give you a tip here. When you see the disciples, we often see ourselves. Have you ever noticed that about reading the Scripture? When you look at you might identify with uh, Philip, or you might identify with Peter, or you might identify with you know, one of the other disciples, maybe John. But when you see the disciples, you'll begin to see yourselves in them. Because we're just like them. Oh, we might think we're a little more sophisticated, but we have the very same concerns. So when you see the disciples, you'll see yourself. And then, and then secondly, uh, when that should be we, we see what we struggle with. Uh, we see our greatest struggles too. When we see what they're struggling with, we see what we're struggling with. So here are the disciples. They're walking along with Jesus, and um, they b- begin to ask him, who is the, the greatest uh, in the kingdom? And, of course... Uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom sort of suggests position. You know, it's, it's jockeying for position. Who's at the top of the pyramid? Who's really uh, the greatest among us? Surely it's got to be me. The implication is it's got to be me, not John. It's got to be me, not, not Phil. It's, it's, the implication is who is the greatest because you have been created by God, as I have been, to become meaningfully involved in something bigger than yourself. That's what the question grows out of. Who's the greatest? But it had a positional sort of um, overtone to it. And yet we ask the very same question. Who is the greatest? Because we're looking for the positional answer. Who ranks at the top? Which of us is really most important? Now, none of us would say that. I get that. But in fact... We must be meaningfully involved in kingdom activity. And that's what they were really asking. And I think Jesus understood that. Well, churches can ask the same question. Um, What must we do to be greatest in the kingdom? You know, church has changed. Have you noticed that? I mean, not just our church. We've moved some things up here. And we got this thingamajig on the top. You know, we have lights. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's just a container. Church has changed. Uh, people have changed. Culture has changed. Lots of things have changed. And in the midst of that change, we can often ask some of the very same questions that we see in the disciples. Well, where is my place? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What is our role even as a church? And Jesus' answer is, to me, absolutely startling. And maybe it is for you. Now, catch the picture. Uh, Jesus is, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, even recently, you know, in the last 20 years meeting, um, it's a dusty place. It's a hard place. 
in the first century when Jesus was there, they didn't even have concrete. Everything was paths and roads and undeveloped, underdeveloped by our standards to be sure. So Jesus, in that context, Jesus, uh, his answer um, didn't give them a positional answer, but he gave them a personal response. And his response was he called a little child. A little child in the first century is probably not too different than little children in our century. You know, little children. They're inappropriate. <laughs> they say things that embarrass you. They, they, it, probably sort of scruffy looking and maybe disheveled, wearing what might have been their best. At best, it was uh, natural looking, maybe barefooted or perhaps wearing sandals. That was for more affluent people. Uh, probably because of the context of where they live, they were pretty uh, dirty looking. Maybe the child had just recently had a tantrum, a temper tantrum, and was crying or didn't get his way. And so he had these little, you know, rivulets coming down out of his eyes on his dirty face. You get the picture? So Jesus, the question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? His disciples were asking. And Jesus then takes this little child and puts him or her uh, in his midst. And uh, he says to them, um, don't overlook the smallest person around you. Now, the, the disciples were asking, who's the greatest? Who's positionally on top of the heap? And Jesus took this little child. Can you picture one in your mind's eye? You know, a little guy or a little girl, sort of stringy hair, a little dirty looking, maybe a runny nose. <laughs> He took this little child. He said, don't overlook the smallest person. You see, the seemingly insignificant. Jesus was saying to his disciples, gentlemen, and to us, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not about our position. The kingdom of God is about persons. It's about the most insignificant people that you can imagine. And in that culture, children, well, and women, maybe this little girl was the least and the most insignificant person that the disciples could ever have imagined. And Jesus took that person and said, if you want to see what the kingdom looks like in its greatness, look at this little person, because of such is the kingdom of God. And then he said in verse 3, unless you are converted, un unless you disciples in your jockeying for position, unless you are converted, meaning unless you experience a change in your heart, um, a shift in how you think and attitudes that are different, um, uh, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you're converted and become like this. Do you know what an affront that was to his disciples for Jesus to have stopped everything and answered their question, but did it by taking this disheveled little person and said, here's the greatest in the kingdom. It's this person. It's you see, the kingdom is really about it's about people. Now, we know that, but I would submit to you that you and I, by and large, are just like the disciples. 
we want to we want to be seen a certain way. We just need to. It's in our human our humanness. We want to be appreciated. Uh, we want to be elevated. Uh, and and Jesus said, no, the kingdom isn't about position. The kingdom is about people. And unless you're converted, unless your heart becomes uh, attuned to, recalibrated with the heart of the Father and aligned to His heart, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Startling truth that Jesus was teaching to His disciples. Unless you're converted and become like this little child, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, it takes a change of heart to see the importance of people around you. Why has church changed so much? Wouldn't it be nice if it were always the way it was? God is in the midst of His church, and He's shifting things around in order to change the hearts of His people. I think that's why church has changed. Because God doesn't want His people simply to continue to come and be entertained as entertaining or as unentertaining as you think church may be. It's not about that. Jesus said, you want to see the kingdom? The kingdom is take this little child and let's talk about what it means to be in the kingdom. Let's talk about what it means to walk as a, a man or a woman in the kingdom. And what he said is that God has to change our hearts and begin to see the importance of unimportant people who are the unimportant people around you (laughs) the people that you overlook I'm you I'm saying us me who are the unimportant people maybe they're older people in our culture. Maybe they're the youngest people in our culture. You see where this goes. Who are the people that we tend to overlook as unimportant? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like these people. It takes a change of heart to see uh, those uh, that are unimportant around us as important. You see, Jesus valued the one. That was his singular point. The kingdom of God isn't about our perception of, of standing or our stature or our position. The kingdom of God is singularly about people. And this question was asked often, in fact, uh, by the disciples. And Jesus answered it on numerous times. So we take time with the one. Now... Verse 4 says, whoever therefore humbles himself like this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this child, this disheveled, maybe unruly, we don't know, maybe ill-kept or perhaps ill-clad, little child, Jesus said, unless you become converted in your heart and become like this little child, you'll never enter in. And then he says, uh, whoever humbles himself like this little child, that's the one that's greatest in the kingdom. So humility then has something to do with how we walk in the kingdom. It takes a whole lot of humility to think of people who are 
seen by our perception as unimportant and begin to have a heart change so that we value them as much as we value our own children, maybe, or those people that we value around us. Whoever humbles himself uh, is the greatest. Now, there's a little parallel text, and if you still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 18, uh, one chapter later in Matthew chapter 19, I want to just read two verses to you. Um, you'll see them here, uh, Matthew uh, 19, verses 13 and 14. Then, this is a chapter later. Jesus just almost, well, in some ways, startled them by the priority of the kingdom being expressed by looking at this illustration of a little child. And Jesus then, uh, then little children were being brought to him, verse 13, to Jesus in order that he might uh, put his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them, the people who were bringing the little kids. But Jesus said, no, no, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. of Jesus again. I mean, one chapter later to say, guys, you didn't get it over here. Tell them to go away. We have important things to do. We're men of the kingdom. You see, we're, we, we are hanging with the chief of the king, the kingdom, the king. And it's important. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom of God, let the little ones come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he laid his hands on them and then they departed uh, from there. Uh, You see, the little children coming to Jesus and us not forbidding them. That's what the kingdom is about. Now, this just goes back to Matthew 18. What's the most important thing in the kingdom? It's not our position. It's not our comfort. It's not even our building or the property that we own. Beloved, the kingdom is about the king um, exercising a change in our hearts so that we begin to value all people better than ourselves. That's a startling revelation from Jesus, the king. So then in verse 5, he says, whoever receives... Uh, Back to Matthew 18, whoever receives one little child like this in my name actually receives me. Now, in all of, I'm sure, the disciples' sophistication and in all of their feeling really good about themselves because they were on the in crowd, they were hanging with Jesus and Jesus was just blasting the religious people around them. They were feeling pretty good about where they were going. And then that feeling good about themselves, they're feeling good about their position. Well, we need to be converted and to become like a little child. Now, I'm summarizing the three things I just said. Secondly, we need to humble ourselves like a child would humble himself. And we need to receive one child as uh, this then is actually how we receive Jesus. If you receive one of them, you receive me, in other words. If you see what I'm doing and do what I'm doing, you really understand the priority of the kingdom. Jesus is after the alignment of our hearts to his priorities. Where is our heart? A rhetorical question. 
in terms of the most important things to Jesus, the unimportant people. Oh, Jesus is interested in important people, too. Don't misunderstand. But where are we in terms of our uh, being converted and being like a little child, humbling ourselves, receiving one little child, aligning our heart? You see, God's clear desire is to bless the generations. Now, we've been spending a whole lot of time as your leadership team thinking about these kinds of questions. And we've come up with some conclusions. And we'll be sharing those in the weeks to come, actually. But we believe more than anything else that God has something in store for this church. And it will require of many of us a shift or a recalibration to the most important things of God. What is the heart of Jesus for us? And who are the unimportant people? And I suspect, based upon these two texts that we saw and many others, uh, that it really has to do with how we view uh, all people around us, the older, but also the younger, and how we're going to value them and make strategic attempts at personal spiritual renewal and then a strategic initiative to begin to close the gaps that we have here based upon real people and real needs. God's in the midst of doing something very special in our midst, but it will require of you, as it will require of me, a change of heart to humble ourselves and see ourselves like little children and give ourselves then to blessing them and encouraging them, be they children of any age. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you that your word is constant and your word is true and your word always gives us a life. And Father, I pray that as we take a few moments here this morning and celebrate uh, what you, Jesus, have done on our behalf, that we would not just come to this table with um, hearts uh, sort of rote, in taking bread and drinking juice. But, Lord, that we would recognize that in our coming, you're asking of us to lay down our need for position. You're asking us to humble ourselves as little children. You're asking us, God, to receive them, whoever they are, in ways that would be life-changing. May we come today and may we find uh, a refreshing spiritual vitality being renewed within us as we contact uh, you afresh through these broken elements. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread with his disciples and breaking it, he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And similarly, Jesus, after he had eaten with his disciples, he took the cup and pouring it out, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you because I'm doing something brand new in your midst. As often as you eat of this bread or drink of this juice, do so in remembering me. Father, we set these elements apart. We thank you for them, that they represent Jesus, the real spiritual presence of Jesus in our midst. Lord, as we hold our elements and consume them together as a family, God, we're asking that you would search our hearts 
causing us to walk in humility before You, that we might be ever available to Your kingdom in the name of Jesus.